Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining me for the May 11th, 2015 edition of the Heretics Hour, one of the Internet's longest-running radio programs, now well into its fifth year. I'm Carolyn Yeager, your long-running, long-winded host. I want to again thank some dear friends for their contributions. I got a check in the mail last week from Roger Mason of North Carolina, who wrote, Hi, Carolyn. Found your website. Glad to contribute. Well, that's it. He has a website, which I will plug, the Young Again Foundation. Go and take a look. It's online. Maybe he saw my section on health. Anyway, I appreciate someone like Roger, who just looks around at things and sends people a contribution because he likes what he sees. Also, I want to thank my faithful Dimitar from Ontario, Canada. So tonight, my guest is the author of a new book on Elie Wiesel titled Holocaust High Priest. It's subtitled Elie Wiesel, Night, the Memory Cult, and the Rise of Revisionism. His name is Warren B. Routledge, a new name in the pantheon of revisionists, but he's not new to it. In fact, the part of the book about the rise of revisionism is some very, very good stuff. The book is available at Amazon, at Kodo Bookshop, and at the Barnes Review. Maybe it's available at some other places too, but those are the only ones that I know of. Tonight, we're going to focus on the early years of Wiesel. We're doing the show in two parts. We recorded the first hour and ten minutes on Wednesday, and on a follow-up day, we recorded the second part, which comes after the music break. This has worked real well and allowed us to fill in a few places where needed. So here we go. So welcome to the Heretics Hour, Warren. I'm ready for your questions anytime. Warren, we agree that at my suggestion that we kind of stick with the early part of Weasel's life on this particular show and go into it in more depth than would be possible if you were going to try to cover everything that's in your book. And I want to say... 
to you, Warren, that I sincerely think your book is a masterpiece. Of course, I have a great interest in Elie Wiesel, so I wanted to know everything that you have to say about him. But you bring in so many other aspects, and I also would I also describe the book as as dense. It's a dense read. It's not a real easy read, although it, if you're trying to read the whole thing in a, a few days like I've been, um, <laughs> that might be the reason, because you don't have to read it all at once. But there's so much in it, and it one thing relates to another, and you've done a great job of organizing all that. Would you say it's it's uh, sort of organized on a chronological base, basis, as most autobiographies are, but at the same time, it goes off here and there in a way, and then the things are picked up later on and brought back in and so on. How would you describe uh, the way that you wrote the book? Well, uh, I would say the book is organized into three different sections. The first section deals with the introduction, the relationship between uh, Elie Wiesel and François Moyac, the French writer who discovered him. And that relationship led to the publication of the novel. Weasel calls it an autobiography, but I make it clear through my demolition of this book in my in my study that it's really a novel. It's not an autobiography. That just about everything in the book is made up. It's a product of someone's imagination. So part one consists of those those four chapters having to do with the the genesis of night, the first publication of night, and then a very important thing is the letters that François Moyac and Elie Wiesel exchanged because we have to remember that uh, Wiesel, after he had his book uh, accepted by a publisher in Paris, he went off to New York City where he claims he was, well, he was hit by a car in the New York, uh, in the Times Square area in New York City. He claims that for a year his whole body was completely encased in plaster and that, that he was able to finish the finish the novel and do all the corrections for his publisher in Paris in that condition. Of course, that's a bunch of rubbish. It was Moriac who took care of all those details, and I explained all those things, and uh, they corresponded. Vezel, Weasel, and Moriac corresponded. They continued to correspond from New York uh, back and forth to Paris until approximately 1964-65, uh, when Moriac wrote a column in uh, the Figaro newspaper in Paris condemning Israel for its behavior vis-a-vis the Palestinians and called Israel essentially a, a terrorist state. Well, that's when Weasel and Moriac broke off their relationship. They exchanged a few letters after that up until the time that Moriac died in 1970. But when Moriac wrote the truth about his feelings about Israel, that was a real body blow to their relationship. Very good. Now, uh, let's let's go into uh, Francois Moriac more. Uh, he plays a very important role, and people need to understand that. Why don't you describe who he was, and what kind of a person well, he was, and what their relationship was. Uh, Moyac was so, a so-called French Catholic novelist. He was born in the area around Bordeaux. He was one of uh, five children. He, there were four boys and one girl in the family. And uh, his father died young. He was raised by his mom, who was uh, a very uh, strenuous, old-time, traditional Catholic. And uh, Moyac 
went to Paris to study uh, as a boy, and in Paris he uh, migrated into adulthood, and he became a novelist, and uh, by 1933, when he was 48 years old, he was voted into the the so-called French Academy, the Académie Française, which is made up of the leading 40 intellectuals in the country at any one particular time. And at that time, the French Academy was definitely right of center. Uh, there were, weren't any Marxists or communists or socialists able to get elected. Mauriac was elected, but when then once he came into the French Academy in 1933, and events continued to play out in uh, in Germany as the you know the, the World Zionist Congress declared war on Germany in 1933, and initiated a boycott against Germany, the Germans had to respond. Many Jews left um, Germany, came to the United States, France, other uh, countries. And Moriac gradually drifted into a man on the right who slowly was migrating over to the left and starting to say things that the communists or socialists would say, uh, expressing his uh, expressing his support for the uh, Jews who were leaving Germany and making criticisms of Germany. And Moriac politically put himself into the anti-fascist camp, which most members of the French Academy were not. They were certainly sympathetic to fascism in uh, Italy and Spain. The important thing about Moriac is this, is that uh, after the war was over, uh, a, a French-Jewish historian by the name of Leon Polyakov decided to take the Nuremberg documents and write a supposed history of German atrocities during the war. The book is called Harvest of Hate in English, but the title of the book in French is even more uh, provocative. It's called The Breviary of Hate, Le Breviaire de la Haine, and the breviary was the book of daily prayers that priests and other religious had to read every day, 45 minutes to an hour of, of spiritual reading to make sure that they kept their life focused on the life of Christ as a model. So the fact that Leon Polyakov entitled his book Breviary of Hate in this 1951 book, he was accusing Catholicism of persecution of the Jews. Not the Nazis so much, but using this word breviary, a collection of readings. And these readings are just generic, um, uh, generic atrocity claims made mostly by the Soviets at, uh, Nuremberg. But, here's the big but. He had, he asked Moriak, to write the introduction to that book. And Moriak, who had a lot of friends in the Jewish community among Jewish intellectuals in Paris, he agreed to write that introduction. And in that introduction, he accused Pius XII of silence during World War II. So Moriak is the first major intellectual to accuse Pius XII of silence during World War II. Other Jews in the well, communists and socialists, marginal people who wrote for Humanité or Humanity, which was the daily newspaper of the French Communist Party, might have made comments like this or that, but that was part of the, the uh, Pius XII had been silent, but that was part of uh, being a communist at that time. The communists and Pius XII were, were at odds 
And so the communists called him all kinds of names uh, at that time during the, during the Cold War after 1945. So here's Moriak, and he's saying that, you know, there were so many parish priests who did this and that, but it sure would have been nice for the successor to St. Peter to have spoken out and to have done more uh, to uh, to condemn, uh, to uh, 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 to uh, condemn the, the treatment that the Jews were undergoing. And at this point, I open up a parenthesis and I say that historians have forgotten something very, very important. Pope Pius XII did not make any accusations, first of all, about an extermination program going on because he never believed that there was an extermination program. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Mm -hmm. but, if, but if you go back and you look at other examples of silence, they're, uh, they're uh, absolutely amazing. There was a series of propaganda movies made in the United States, Why We Fight. And those, uh, those films were shown in movie theaters and brainwashed people. But they never mentioned that the Jews were undergoing any special persecution. Why? Because people, ordinary people at the grassroots, I know in my family when I grew up, and people uh, in my social circle, they said, this war is a war we're fighting for the Jews. People felt very strongly. Uh, Americans were very, very strongly opposed to this war at the grassroots level. Of course, the media were just as strongly controlled by Jewish interests then as they are now. But without the Internet, they were able to keep it quite secret. But at the grassroots, many people, many people felt that. When the first bodies, the first dead bodies were discovered in one of the out camps just outside Buchenwald, uh, or Dorf or whatever it's called, General Eisenhower saw some bodies that the Germans had put on a pyre in order to burn these bodies which were dead and which were rotting from typhus as a hygienic measure. They burned these bodies. And Eisenhower saw that and he said, gee, now our soldiers are always saying, we don't know why we're fighting. We don't, we're not, we don't know why we're fighting. And now look, we can look at this pyre and now we can see why we're fighting. Mm -hmm. That was verbal shorthand by Eisenhower. What he was basically saying is, the average infantryman in the U.S. Army was a kid 18 years old who was drafted. He was campaigning, going through Germany, uh, killing everything, destroying everything in his wake. The average GI, 18 years old, who was drafted, had never, about 80% of them had never even been out of the county mm -hmm. in which they were born. And they were wondering why the hell they were fighting and why they were destroying one beautiful town after another one beautiful church after another. They had never seen so many beautiful places, but they were destroying everything uh, that, they, that, that, they, uh, uh, that they marched through. And so when Eisenhower said that, he was making an allusion to the fact that on the ground, people felt that this was a war for the Jews. They didn't know why they were fighting. And so Eisenhower wanted to refer to that. I also have another quote in my, in my book as an example of this silence. But Senator Tom, uh, Senator uh, Dodd, who retired several years ago in the state of Connecticut, his dad, Tom Dodd, was a member of the prosecution team at Nuremberg. And I quote a letter that he wrote 
to his wife while the prosecution was going on. And he says in that letter that 75% of the members of the prosecution team, the United States prosecution team of the Germans, were American Jews. He said, this is absolutely outrageous. The Jews shouldn't be here. But it's so obvious that this is a racial persecution that, that, that's going on here because 75% of the uh, prosecutors on the staff are Jewish. Only the figureheads like himself and his boss were not Jewish. And he said, I know that people are still saying this was a war for the Jews. And the fact that 75% of the prosecutors here are Jewish is just going to continue to have people keep on saying that World War II was a war for the Jews. So there was a lot of a lot of silence that went on, certainly in, in the in the uh, in the media. Well, Moriak in this introduction to Polyakov's book, when he says uh, Pius XII should have spoken out, uh, Moriak was being hypocritical when he said that. Why? Because during the war in 1943, Moriak. Courageous man as he, he was, he stayed in his own home in the area outside the city of Bordeaux in the southwest of France. His family had extensive land holdings, uh, wine vineyards, and in fact the demarcation line between the German-occupied area and the so-called free uh, uh, Vichy area ran right through his property. He had to put up a German captain and his orderly in his home. They got the best room in the house. He had to pay their room and board under the armistice that had been signed at the end of hostilities in June 1940. But Moriak wrote a book which he signed with the pseudonym of Flores, and the book was called The Black Notebook, Le Cahier Noir. It's called The Black Notebook. He published it clandestinely in 1943. It was immediately translated into English, and it became a propaganda vehicle in England and the United States. So what he wanted to do, essentially in that book, was to continue to argue on behalf of the Jews, but keeping a silence that was quite similar to Pius XII's, and never mention the word Jew. So how did he go about doing this, keeping the same silence that Pius XII was, was observing during the war? He told a story about his uh, son and his wife, his oldest boy, Claude, and his wife. Jean, Jeanne. They were at a station in Paris one day, and they saw some Jewish boys and girls being put on a train to go to the suburbs. It wasn't a cattle car or anything, it was just a regular passenger train. And they were leaving, going, going who knows where. Uh, they might have been going to one of the transit points. They might have been orphans, who knows where they were. But they saw these kids getting on the train. So he said, I saw, I saw these children getting on the train. It was a cattle car. There were no cattle cars. That, that's a lie he made up. So here he is giving, Moriak is the first false witness to the Holocaust already in 1943. And, uh, he says, I saw these children on the train and who knows whatever happened to them once the train pulled out. He failed to mention the fact that these kids are Jews, but he didn't have to. Because most people realized just the fact that he was telling the story. Obviously, people were so brainwashed in the United States and Britain, uh, they figured they were able to interpret and just write in the word Jewish. And so Moriak observed the same silence in his propaganda pamphlet 
the Black Notebook that Pius XII did, and that's specifically condemning an extermination. But of course, in his case, he knew there was no extermination going on. Now, you do think that Moriac was a brilliant man and a great writer, but you're faulting him, and he's a Catholic too. Yes. But you're faulting him for, for what? Why do you think he became such a Judeophile? Why did he become such a Judeophile? I think the reason for that is that uh, um, his mother uh, his mother had been such an... During the Dreyfus Affair, when he was a young man, he was born in 1885, he was a teenager. His mother read the, the right-wing papers, and she was uh, totally convinced of Captain Dreyfus's guilt that he was a Jew and a German spy. And... Uh, uh, his mom and all of his brothers, his three brothers and his mother, were violently had strenuous uh, feelings uh, against the Jews as being a foreign element in the in the body politic of France. And as he got older and became a world figure, he uh, he might have felt that he was making reparation of some kind for the uh, feelings that existed in his family. His mother was long gone, but his three brothers were all strong supporters of fascism in France, and, and one of those brothers was a priest. So he might have felt that he was doing penance by helping Elie Wiesel uh, in his literary career and switching over and becoming uh, and becoming a Judeophile. So then when did he uh, meet Elie Wiesel, and how did that go? Uh, he, met, uh, he met Elie Wiesel in May of 1955 at a at a, a cocktail party at the Israel Israeli um, embassy in Paris, and Elie Wiesel came up to him, introduced himself, and asked for a uh, if he could interview him uh, for his the newspaper he worked for, a Yiddish newspaper he worked for, and uh, Moriad said, "Fine, why don't you come over to my apartment sometime?" And, Weasel later said, I was just amazed at how nice he was to me, but I try to explain in the background that Moriak led a hidden life. He was a closet homosexual, and he had a number of affairs with young men. And he had a reputation of being a guy who collected young men and who was easily, and who, who was flattered by the company of young men. And I surmise in my book, of course, I don't say that Weasel and Moriak had a physical love affair. There's no proof that that happened. But I think it's pretty clear that uh, Moriak, with his interest in young men, was very much interested in Weasel, thought he was attractive. And one of the reasons why Weasel went and consulted Moriak and said he wanted to interview him was because it was already known among the Jewish people, that Jewish intellectuals, that Weasel... Uh, frequented in Paris, that Moriac was the kind of guy who was always willing to invite a young man over, over to his apartment. Well, what Weasel wanted, Weasel has said that he wanted to get Moriac to introduce him to another French politician. That's a total lie. What reason he gave for talking to Moriac was that he had a manuscript and he wanted to ask Moriac to help him with his manuscript. But he invented this pretext later on when he gave it his version of the first meeting between the two of them. He said that he wanted to get Moriac, whom he didn't know, to introduce him to another uh, French politician, whom uh, Vaisal didn't know, either a Jewish politician. Right. 
You know, I, I believed that part of it. I fell for that. I mean, I didn't think, well, that was just a pretext. So it's interesting to me that you're saying that that was never really a part of it, just another one of Weasel's uh, stories that he adds to what actually happened. So that's interesting. Yes. So the big question is, uh, one question is, when Weasel made this appointment, and in May 1955, went over to Moriac's appointment, uh, did he tell did he tell Moriac he had a French manuscript, or did he tell him he had a Yiddish manuscript? Because at the same time in May 1955, he had his uh, the the manuscript for this book called On the World Has Forgotten, written in Yiddish, was accepted for publication in Buenos Aires. And it appeared later in November 1955. So, um, did, uh, so, so there was a Yiddish book. I don't think, uh, Weasel might have told him that he had a Yiddish book. And, uh, Moriak, and later what Weasel did, he, he claims that he built, or he translated the so-called, what I call a bridge text. That's to say, he gave a loose translation of a very much shortened version of the original Yiddish book and gave that to Moriak to give Moriak an idea of what his book was all about. And he asked Moriak to take that bridge text and shop it around, in particular, with his own publisher, an avant-garde publisher in Paris, the editions of uh, Midnight uh, Publishers, and uh, and Moriak did just that, and he got his publisher, uh, who had published the Black Notebook during the war in 1943, he got this publisher to to uh, publish Weasel's book, but then. Mm-hmm. But let's let's go back before you go any further with that. Let's go back to the Yiddish book. Um, you know my my understanding. Of that is that um, when he his first meeting with Moriac and Moriac told him he should write a book <laughs> about his experiences and he didn't tell him that he had was already working on a book but he tells the reader of his autobiography that he was already working on or thinking about this book or he couldn't have been because he had this he has this ten year vow his vow to not write anything for ten years and the ten years wasn't up. But, uh, his meeting, but at the same time, this, this Yiddish book existed. Uh, what is your, this, this is one of the most I, I, mysterious I, parts of, uh, of the Ellie Wiesel story. Go ahead. I've seen, uh, I've seen and held in my hands a copy of the Yiddish book, of course. Mm-hmm. I don't read, uh, Yiddish. It's written in, it's written in Hebrew script. It's, it's basically a corrupted version of the German language. It's a German dialect. But written in Jewish characters, so. But uh, I, I, I once held a copy of the book. I'd say it's about twice the length of uh, of the final version of Night or La Nuit. It's about twice the length of. That's that book. that's the revised one, but the original one was uh, not not published though, so you wouldn't have held that one. The original one was uh, twice as long as that, if not four times as long as that. So it was uh, supposedly uh, the original Yiddish book was 600, I've forgotten now, 500 or 600 pages. But if those were typewriter pages, that could vary quite a bit. I think think there's some exaggeration there. Uh, uh, Weasel's uh, biographer, Jack Colbert, 
um, his biographer, Jack Colbert, published a book in 2000, The Life, Life of uh, Ellie Weasel. And he was given to exaggeration and exactitude. He wanted to present Weasel as a European intellectual, which he was not. He was just a, a dim-witted guy who, uh, who could only do one thing in life, and that's just sit around and read the Talmud and make commentaries on the Talmud, parsing words and, and uh, speculating upon what words meant. And so I think Jack Colbert, he, he might have been told by Weasel, that my original book was 702 pages, and I boiled it down to 156. And Jack Goldberg either repeated that or invented it himself. He's always trying to make uh, Basil sound like a fantastic uh, a European intellectual. But in my view, the copy of the book I saw, I would say, is not four times longer than night. No. It, twice it, yeah, time. it was 200 and some pages. What I understand. So it would be maybe 300 pages as opposed to the finished product of night being 150 mm -hmm. pages, or right. depending upon the pagination, 350 as opposed to 175. Right. It's about twice as long. Mm -hmm. And as you know, in my book, I I, I emit the, the call, I, I hoping that somebody will someday provide us with a responsible uh, translation into French and into English of that Yiddish version of the book with the side-by-side -side version of Night, so we can compare the two texts. You know, I had, uh, I have on my uh, Ellie Weasel Cons the World website, at, at the time that uh, the person who calls himself Clatteradatch, who's very good translator, and could translate from Yiddish, and he volunteered to me uh, private in a private uh, message and emails, to that he would help me with this, and he translated quite a lot of passages. Not certainly not the whole book, but the passages that were the that I felt you know were most. Carolyn, that would be one of the most fantastic things that anybody could possibly do, so that we can make we can make important uh, comparisons on key on key. Well, sure, and I I have I have quite I have some of those posted. Um, and I have more of them even in my in my files. But what he what he found was that a lot of things related to actually to Ellie Wiesel's family. But C. Wiesel could have added those names and his sister's names and so on to whatever book. Because let, let's just get into this right now a little bit. Uh, you you have said I, now. Let me just say okay, one okay. thing about what you just said there. Uh -huh. This individual you know would. Be performing a wonderful service. Well, because we can look at all the important key sure. passages in the novel and compare. Well, sure. Compare the two. Sure, he was doing that, but then uh, somehow uh, I ran out of uh, things. I had everything I needed, so he didn't do any more. But uh, later, Carlo Matonio realized I had those Yiddish passages, and he wrote and asked me if I if I could put him in touch with someone who could do that, and I put him and this clatter dash together, and I think that's what he used, uh, why he has that in the essay that he's written on Ellie Wiesel, which is extremely important, I think, and is at the, added at the end of your book. Well, the very fact that the Holocaustians, the people who are the, the Holocaust profiteers, who use the Holocaust story to justify the existence of Israel and their crimes that the Israeli Jews commit against the Palestinian people, the people who manage the day-to-day -day operations of the Jewish Holocaust narrative, the fact that these people who use 
Ellie Weasel as a figurehead for their movement and constantly tell us what a great intellectual he is. The fact that they have never translated the original work, I think, tells us an awful lot uh, that we need to know, that there are lots of things in there that they're hiding. They're hiding something. Otherwise, that thing would have been translated a long time ago. And that's an additional reason for us to want to get you to maybe light a fire under this friend to get as many passages as we possibly can translated into contemporary English. Right. So, um, and he he translates into French too. So he 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 compared. We were comparing the uh, the Yiddish and the French, and then the English oh, version wow. uh, together. And there, I have quite a number of those passages. But there are some of them on the article. When did Ellie Weasel arrive at Auschwitz? Could he have received the number A seven seven one thirteen? He he worked with me on this article, and this is the, probably the main article that I wrote about. Uh, El, whether Ellie Wiesel was at uh, was could have been at Auschwitz or not, but I have uh, a lot of articles about whether uh, whether Ellie Wiesel was at Buchenwald. In fact, I've got let's see one, two, three, four, five, six. I counted uh, this morning. So I work more on the Buchenwald, and uh, that's easier to show because there's not much information about Auschwitz and him, right? Do you think? I mean. Uh, but we'll get into that later, and maybe not too much later. But this this Yiddish book, um, I had that question right away, Warren, whether, uh, as I started reading about things, I thought, of the, well, when he writes about how he wrote the book, of course, he doesn't tell the truth about any of it. So you just put it down, I think, to that, well, he's just making up stories. But I thought, well, this shows that he didn't write this book. But then I gave that up because uh, this Flatterdatch did, seemed to think that there it was that was not a very good position to take because so much in the Yiddish book he showed related to what was in Weasel's book Night. But you have suggested that he maybe created that book out of a lot of other people's stories. And in that if that's the case he could have just made it put his own family's names in there and so on. Yeah. There's one thing one thing we haven't discussed with regard to that first meeting that took place at the Israeli Embassy in Paris in 1955. And I'd just like to bring up that one point for your listeners. Mm -hmm. There are two versions of this meeting, and uh, François Moyac died in 1970 at the age of 85. Mm -hmm. Seven years after he died, Weasel wrote a book in Paris called A Jew Today, A Juif Aujourd'hui, A Jew Today. And in that book, a Jew, it was just a collection of short essays. And in, in that, he described meeting Moriak for the first time. And uh, prevaricator that he is, he says that that first meeting took place in 1954 and not 1955. And the reason he said that is so that he knew in 1977 when he wrote this that Moriak had been dead for seven years. And um, he knew that Moriak had been dead for seven years. So he wasn't going to go around and, and correct him on this point. But what Weasel wanted to do by moving the original meeting back a year was then to give himself more time to have, for having met Moriak in May 1954 and then having his book finally ready by the end of 1950, uh, finally having uh, written the book because he claimed in this essay in 1977 
that he had written nothing, that he was still under his so-called tenure vow of silence. And when he met Moriak in 1954, Moriak said to him, you must write this book, you must write this book, as Moriak was sitting there on the sofa in tears uh, after Weasel had told him all kinds of tall tales about the atrocities he had allegedly seen in Auschwitz. And Moriak said, you have to write, you have to write that book. So brazen liar that Weasel is, he told his readers and the world in 1977 that they had met in 1954. That would give him 18 months to start his novel from scratch and then have it ready to show to Moriak at the end of 19, at the end of 1955 and then for Moriak to start to work with it and so forth. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, for, for, for the novel to be ready for publication in the Buenos Aires in 1955. At that time, the world didn't know that the book even existed in 1977. People didn't even know that the Yiddish version of the book actually existed at all. We only found out about that about another 10 late years. What was it that uh, brought that out? Because he wasn't going to tell anybody. Exactly. He's a snake, this man. He's so underhanded. He lies about everything. But what Wiesel uh, didn't realize when he said that in 1977, is that Moriak, in one of his columns, he had a column he published every uh, week in the Figaro newspaper called Notepad, uh, my notepad, or my, the, Le Bloc Not, my notebook. And uh, in it, one day, in 1955, he talked about some students who had come to visit him. He said, I had a Japanese student come and visit me, a young Australian come, and a young Israeli come to visit me recently. And, of course, that young Israeli was Weasel, and that happened in May 55, not 54. Well, that newspaper uh, article was published and forgotten. Nobody paid any attention. But in the middle 90s, uh, an eminent uh, Moriak scholar at the Sorbonne went back and took all of Moriak's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of weekly newspaper columns and published them in a five-volume book. And once they were published in the five-volume book, it became apparent. He put a footnote in there and he said, this has got to be Weasel. Weasel always claimed that the meeting took place in 1954, but it was actually 1955. He didn't know it was 1954. He didn't know Weasel that well. But once I saw that Moriak said 55, I obviously was able to identify Weasel as the person that he was talking about and uh, prove the fact Weasel had been lying again when he said he met Moriak in 54. Well, you know, what I noticed is that uh, in his, uh, he, I, I had to make a lot of use of his autobiography, uh, All Rivers. What is that rest of that? All Rivers Flowed to the Sea. Because I didn't have access to a lot of other things and uh, things in foreign languages and so on. So I scanned that real carefully. And, you know, he, he said so many things in that autobiography that in a blatant way contradicted what he wrote in night or what he said elsewhere like and one of them was these dates for when he wrote the but when he met moriak when he wrote the book when he went to brazil and so on so uh you know all of that it's kind of amazing that he would have and he wrote the his autobiography in the 90s probably it was published then and um it's amazing that he would make all those errors or was it on purpose why, do you have any explanation for that as to why he would say different things uh, in in that autobiography of his? 
it's um it's it's uh it's it's truly it's truly amazing. I uh I, I believe let's take an example of I don't know if you're thinking of something like this, but in the novel Night, he says that in January 1945, just before the Soviets mm -hmm. arrive, he had a case of um, frostbite on his foot. He went to the Jewish doctors in the SS hospital in Monowitz, and he was operated on for his frostbite. Yet, in all rivers run to the sea, he claims that at that time, he had a problem with his knee, and the Jewish doctors at uh, the SS hospital operated on his knee. Now, this is absolutely astounding that he could make a mistake like this. Uh, after all, Knight is supposed to be an autobiography in which everything allegedly happened. If he had actually had an operation for, for uh, frostbite, there was every reason to believe there might have been a scar left on his foot or scar tissue of some kind. How could he then write later on in his autobiography that it was a knee operation? How could his editors have let that go through? Everything is everything is so sloppy. Everything is so sloppy. And uh, that is one of the things that leads me to believe that Weasel never really wrote that book in the first place, that he might have found short stories or a book of reminiscences or texts of some kind that existed in Yiddish that he and maybe some other people had put together. And when that book was originally published in uh, Yiddish, in Buenos Aires, that perhaps uh, he just, it was a slapdash work that he didn't have much to do with, but he just wanted to become an author, to be uh, to be somebody. There's another proof of that, that he didn't write, write the book, and that is uh, it, to go on to a slightly different subject. Uh, Weasel has a certain amount of uh, what the French call pudeur, P-U-D-E-U-R. It's a, it's a certain reserve about things having to do with bodily functions. And um, he's different from a lot of the so-called um, so survivors who like to talk about bodily functions and bodily <laughs> fluids and so forth. They're obsessed by it. And there's a scene in the cattle car when Weasel and his family first leave Auschwitz, uh, first leave Zagat, and they're going to Auschwitz, and he talks about the Orthodox boys in the train sodomizing each other, and the moms and dads and the little brothers and sisters are sitting there quietly while these boys engage in anal sex with each other. When the first time I read that, I was so shocked. I was shocked. Uh, I'm an old-fashioned person. I was shocked. At how could this be in the book? How, how could these people do this? And it doesn't seem to me to be in line with Weasel's personality. Let me just make clear to the listeners that this is in the Yiddish book that you're talking about. I mean, it does carry over to the other, but it starts out in you the Yiddish about book. The French book. Well, it carries over to the French book. Uh, yes, mm -hmm. but uh, but it starts mm -hmm. out. It, it's in the Yiddish book. It's in the French book. Yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. So. It, uh, he was raised as a Hasidic Jew. Why would he say these things about the people who belong to his community that he grew up with? That's the kind of thing that Jews who are not religious, secularized Jewish people who, who very often despise uh, uh, Orthodox Jews, have very, very strong feelings of hatred and dislike for Orthodox Jews and look down upon them. 
as as nutcases. Uh, so w- when I read that passage, I, I feel that, that Weasel being such a strenuously and pious Orthodox Jew, he could not have written this. But then at the same time, why didn't he pick up on it? Why didn't he delete it? Why didn't other editors who read it delete this? That's the that, that's the thing I can't figure out. And that remained in the text until about 2002, when rabbis in France complained so much about this scene that the original publisher, Midnight Editions, Edition de Minuit in Paris, changed it to the young people were uh, embracing each other or caressing each other. He tried to water it down a little bit. So this window opened onto uh, the inner life inside Orthodox Jewish communities and families so that window could be closed, and non-Jews couldn't look through it anymore. But, 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 um, wasn't it? I thought it was Weasel's wife who made that change. Oh no! In her that, new translation, oh, 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 no. she translated the change. That change was originally made by the rabbis, two thousand two. Okay. So that every subsequent edition of the book that is published in France since two thousand two has changed the verb from copulating with each other to caressing each other. And then when Marianne came along and saw that in 2007, she translated that into English the same way. Because, you know, this is in, is in the English book, too, and has been all along. But I thought, oh, you know, he, he, I have another question. He uh, uses the phrase young people, and you seem to think it was boys, not well, boys and girls. Uh, 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 young, people, uh, young people is very, very vague. Mm-hmm. Young people is very, very vague. And it doesn't necessarily mean boys and girls, especially in the context of Orthodox Jews, where boys and girls are totally segregated. They never even look at each other. And a boy, a teenage boy of 14 or 15, who wouldn't know what in the world to do with a girl. Uh, they hardly ever see them, much less ever talk to them, unless they're with maybe a sister in their family. So we cannot eliminate at all the possibility that this was homosexual activity. And the fact it's more than likely, given this social segregation that existed and exists to this day in radically, strongly orthodox uh, milieus, social spheres. Could it be that they put on the the story that, that they really don't in, enforce that in actuality? Because uh, I think, you know, Jewish people seem to be pretty free sexually. But I, you know, I think what your position is interesting. I, I just hadn't uh, thought about that myself. So if it's that, that brings us back to the subject of homosexuality, which I wanted to go into just a little bit more. Um, the fact that Moriak was a mature figure, a mentor type person to Elie Wiesel, and then he's had other older men in his life. And it brings you to, to the question. I think you, you have a suspicion that Ellie himself is homosexual tendencies, but you don't well, want to say I, it because there's no proof, I understand. All, all I can say is, is this, is that uh, as you grow up as a Hasid, uh, there was strict segregation between boys and girls. And he, he say, it says himself in his novel, as a boy, he would go and sit in the synagogue at night, and instead of being home with his mom and dad and his three sisters, he would sit in the synagogue at night and mosh the sexton, or the guy who was charged with uh, taking care of the synagogue, uh, putting out the candles and sweeping up and tidying up the pews and so forth and getting ready for services. 
that, that this man sat and watched them night after night, and then one day he approached them, and they used to sit together until 10 o'clock at night, every night in the synagogue, sitting there and weeping about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Well, this is unusual for a young, for a boy, a teenager, to be involved with this oddball, this oddball, like, like the village idiot type, who works around the synagogue part-time. Then later on, he talks about how in 1943, his family couldn't go on their usual fancy vacation. They usually went to a resort of some kind on vacation. But by 1943, the security situation, wherever they went in Romania, didn't work. Uh, so his family didn't go on vacation. So he spent all that time in the summer with three three friends of his. And they went into mystical, mystical uh, ecstasies. Uh, together and two there might have been five boys all together three of them had a nervous breakdown and couldn't talk they lost the ability to speak but the leader of the group he managed to say in good shape and he and weasel met together during those weeks when weasel didn't go on vacation because of the summer because of the security situation and weasel and this other young man uh he said they went through all these mystical experiences. But, you know, this is a way, I believe, of saying, talking about something else. And then, of course, once he got to France, mm -hmm. he was approached on a commuter train coming out from Paris, going out to the orphanage where he lived, and he was picked up by another man, Shushani, Mordecai Shushani. And he was totally dominated and psychologically abused by this man for, for two or three years. And uh, I say psychologically abused, and Weasel describes the psychological abuse quite, quite uh, concretely in his autobiographical writing. So there's a pattern here of relationships with older men that that, that does indeed raise questions. It raises questions, but and what about Francois Wall? If that's how you pronounce that last name, W A H L, his homosexual friend in Paris. While he was still in the orphanage, I believe. Oh, oh uh, yes, he, uh, there, then, then was the boy, um, Francois Val, W-A-H-L, uh, uh, who gave him tutoring, who gave him lessons at his home when his mother was away at work. And uh, Francois Val later became a very, very well-known philosopher. He was approximately Weasel's age, maybe three or four years older. Uh, maybe a little bit more, maybe born about 1920. Weasel was born in 1928. And, uh, once, once he became well known, Francois Val was completely out of the closet and said that he became a out of the closet homosexual when he was 15. So everybody knew when he was still in high school. He never hid it. Well, this is amazing that Weasel would have this friendly, deep friend, friendly relationship with this boy, uh, uh, going to his home every day, uh, taking French lessons, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why his biographer Jack Colbert, whom I mentioned a few minutes ago, mm -hmm. changes the name of François Val to Gustave Val, in, perhaps in order to hide the fact that the the the, the Val W H A L that Morick was so closely associated with was in so. fact this young man who had declared his homosexuality as a teenager. It's all very troubling. It's all hidden. It's all hidden. Moriac had all these rumors about him throughout his whole throughout his whole career. Mm -hmm. 
so there's a whole dimension about uh, Weasel's life that we really don't know anything about that's being hidden by the powers that be. And when it comes out, it'll really be quite powerful. It won't surprise me if it turns out to be what I suspected, but I want to make this clear. I'm not saying that Weasel was a homosexual. I'm saying that there are troubling descriptions that he gives of intimate relationships and long-term relationships with older men where he seems to play a submissive role to these older older men. And I'm inquiring about what the nature of those relationships happen to be. In the case of Moriak, Moriak, uh, the fires had gone out by the time he met Weasel, but he could still be attractive, attracted to young men. And that was his favorite relationship with the love affairs that he had was men who were 30 or 40 years younger, 20, 25 years younger than he was. And he cheated for years on his wife and broke her, broke her heart. I'm told that there is still a, a, a correspondence that has not been published by anyone. It's been seen only by one person who's a professor, a Moriac specialist in Great Britain, who tells me that he's seen some of these letters. Uh, but this is a correspondence between Moriac and his wife in which they talk about his dalliances with men. And um, as I say, uh, that's under lock and key. It's under lock and key, and who knows when it will ever be published, if ever. Right. Well, okay. How about now, how all the reasons to believe that Moriac was more responsible for the final product of Knight than Ellie Wiesel? Yes, so in the book, in the book, I go over to the website for the, the publisher who published that book in 1958. And of course, they talk about how difficult it was to publish the book because Weasel supposedly had his whole body encased in plaster <laughs> in a hospital in New York City. Oh, how could he write? How could he get conclusions on the manuscript? Uh, well, in their, uh, on the website, they talk about getting ready to publish the book and they were planning to bring it out. But, uh, Weasel wanted to publish it on the anniversary of the liberation of uh, Buchenwald. But at the last minute, when they were getting ready to publish the book, the only copy, the copy that they were working on, was in Moriac's possession, and he had taken with him on vacation for a month or six weeks. Well, if Moriac had nothing to do, <laughs> if Moriac had nothing to do with preparing the final version of Night for publication, what in the world was he doing? with the one super copy that everybody was working on, and why did he take it with him on vacation if he wasn't doing one final go-through to make sure that that book got, get, was ready to, to, finally, to finally be published. Mm -hmm. I take, take this as proof that Moriac had a very, very active hand in the redaction of the final version of that book. Was, uh, the, the publisher tries to give the impression that the, that the head editor in Paris and Wiesel handled all the changes. But first of all, that would have been impossible corresponding back and forth, especially with the supposed author, Wiesel, being in plaster. And the only reason he was... Uh, well, no, I won't get out to that subject yet, just yet, but Moriaka is the one who had the final say. And I want to show, if you look at the final, final scene of the book in the face in the mirror, and you compare the scene of the face in the mirror in the Yiddish version mm -hmm. with the face in the mirror in the final version in French. Clearly, Moriac, clearly Moriac, uh, completely rewrote that whole scene. Oh yeah, yeah. Although you know, when I read it, I liked the one in the Yiddish 
best because it gave a lot of information uh, that you could uh, kind of tear apart and <laughs> look into and so on. So I, li- I like what's in the Yiddish better than the cleaned up version as far as doing uh, learning about Elie Wiesel. And if, just for your listeners, let me say that in the Yiddish version, when you get to the end of the novel, the author uh, is he's in the he's in the john he's in the men's room the bathroom he's looking in the mirror and he goes into a long diatribe he's looking in the mirror he goes into a long diatribe he's saying here we are it's more than 10 it's almost 15 years after the war and the germans are walking down the street they're not feeling any guilt their country's being rebuilt under the marshall plan and so forth they don't feel guilty uh, all the uh, so-called German war criminals have gone free. The world has forgotten all the sufferings of the Jewish people during the war. And then he takes his fist and he breaks the mirror. He also wanders off on a few other subjects. Well, uh, Moriak got rid of all the diatribe about the Germans and this and that. And Moriak just has him go in and look at the face in the mirror. He sees himself in the mirror. And Moriak uses that image, uh, uses that image as a symbol for Jewish suffering that took place during the whole war. And so the young man looks in the mirror and he sees a cadaver, uh, looking, uh, looking back at him. So Moriak eliminated maybe 500, 500 words of baloney and bluster and fourth class sophomoric writing, which is typical of Weasel. Uh, and he, master that he was, reduced it to a hundred words or so, uh, with a powerful image, which gave the book tremendous power. Did Weasel, with his pretty dim mental lights and his intellectual limits, could never have done. All right. Well, that's a very good point. But you know, the, uh, the uh, Yiddish version tells us more about Weasel than the, uh, than the cleaned-up Moriak version does, and that's why I'm interested in it. In every aspect, um, it, it pretty much follows along the same subject matter, the same events and so on, but it writes a whole lot more about them than, than the edited yes, one. that's true. And, of course, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to edit things down. But I don't know. I, I, I guess I can't, I can't feel as, as certain as I one time did that Weasel didn't write that book. He could have been writing it, as you point. You said to me at one somewhere, or you wrote it that he uh, had been working on it. I think it might be in your book somewhere that he had been working on it since he actually uh, got out of the camps in one way or another. And then elsewhere, you say, well, he just started working on it after at at some point. Now, the ending of the book, the Yiddish book. Is says that uh, he started working on it right away after he broke the mirror and started feeling better, and he started working on writing about it. Well, well, I guess, I guess, Carolyn, I would say, I don't have any definitive answer because there are so many arrows pointing in different directions. Weasel, first of all, says you wrote the book. Well, you have to take that statement seriously. He says you wrote the book. Okay, fine. Uh, and he presented a bridge text of that book at some point to Moriak, and Moriak took that to his publisher. But at the same time, we have the passages that we're talking about here. He talks in the book about having gotten frostbite on his foot, yet in his autobiography, he talks about having injured his knee in an industrial accident. So 
uh, how could he have forgotten? Uh, how could he have forgotten that he got uh, frostbite? Yeah. Unless perhaps perhaps that arrow is pointing to the possibility that he just plagiarized that text. He stole he stole it from somebody else, and over time he forgot that he had stolen that particular uh, that that particular. But story. you know, like you said, his editors. I mean, I don't see how he could forget and publish that go all the way through the publishing process or pre-publishing process and it not be brought to, brought up to him. Wasn't he married at that time? What, what about his wife? He said his wife was always helping him and, you know, uh, editing everything and so on. How could anybody miss that? I, you know, when I came across that, I was like, wow, Eureka, you know, and I, I, I wrote something about it. But like everything you write about this man that is uh, astounding, people who uh, are interested in, and revisionism find it interesting or care about it, but the rest of the world just doesn't want to pay a bit of attention to it. Yes. Yeah. Well, wh- whether he wrote the whole book or not um, is, this, is a topic which will be discussed for many years to come. But the fact is the book that was finally produced in Yiddish and the book finally produced in French that exists and that poor, unfortunate American youngsters in high school have to read in their brainwashing classes in school, that book shows that the narrator in that book, and we're presuming that that Elie Wiesel claims to be the narrator of that supposed autobiography, he didn't know diddly about the physical layout at Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. He knew nothing about the place. He didn't know anything about uh, what Dr. Mengele looked like. He knew nothing about the travel realities of getting on a train and traveling from Buchenwald to, uh, from Auschwitz to Buchenwald and so forth. He knew nothing about the uh, fact that he would have had to get a new ID when he got off the train in Buchenwald. He would have had to show his old ID and get a new ID or have to put his, write his new ID onto the old ID and uh, so forth. He knew nothing about all the administrative procedures that were going on. And of course, as far as the liberation of Buchenwald goes, uh, you've done so much work on that subject with all the contradictions that are involved there. I've done work on it, and the blogger Further Glory, he continues to work on it. Uh, He's um, just a liar. He just made up everything. So it's pretty clear that the narrator was not where he claims to have been and just made up the story. Well, that brings us to uh, what Carlo Matonio has said, which I'd like to bring up, because that he also backs up. I mean, I I wrote, well, when did I? I've got it somewhere, but I wrote uh, a long time ago already that I didn't believe uh, Ellie Wiesel was at either camp, but I certainly knew he wasn't at Buchenwald, and I have quite a number of articles this, that, and other approach to it that he definitely was not there, but it's a little bit harder to decide about Auschwitz. But if he wasn't at Buchenwald, he wasn't at Auschwitz either, really, because he went from there to Buchenwald from Auschwitz based on that character that was that was there. And now uh, Carlo Matonio has come out. I, I didn't see these strong statements that are in this essay now that's at the back of your book, so I just want to quote a couple of them. On page 404 in your book, he makes a statement, It is therefore irrefutably ascertained that Elie Wiesel is a liar and a perjurer about Auschwitz. And then he says um, on page 412, It is obvious that we have here nothing but a simple subterfuge 
used by Wiesel to style himself as an eyewitness of a horrific but purely fictitious event. And then he talks about how Wiesel discusses uh, how they, how they, uh, what happened after he arrived, and then he goes through it by a person who was there, Ted Use Iwasco, and what he says about it, totally, totally different from the way Wiesel describes it. And now he finally says, um, in short, Ellie Wiesel was never interned either at Birkenau or at Auschwitz or at Monowitz or at Buchenwald. You know, I just love him for making those straight-out statements like that. And um, he fi- he finishes up by saying, considering all this, Elie Wiesel's extreme reluctance to show his alleged serial number, meaning his tattoo, may be taken as a confession. Well, you had said to me, you know, if you could, you want to see his arm, and when you see that there's no tattoo there, then you'll know for sure. Yeah, we just... Uh... Oh, we, uh, I myself am uh, 97% convinced. <laughs> I just would like to be able to walk up to the man, take him by the forearm, and look and see if that uh, tattoo is there. But I generally, I generally agree with everything that Matanyo says. Of course, he's a very meticulous and solid scholar. He doesn't say something unless he's thought long and hard about it. I've never ever known him to ever make a mistake in anything that he, he that he publishes. And he. He comes at the subject of weasel in the camps from a slightly different point of view, from the point of view that I, I adopt. But we both come to basically, essentially, the same same conclusions that uh, he's a faker, he's a phony. Well, he's a complete phony. right. I think that um, that Matonio is only looking at the issue of whether he was in these camps, and that's it. You know, that's pretty much what he looks at. He's looked a little bit into the book night and the 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 question of the Yiddish book who wrote it and so on, but you on the other hand have got a complete, uh, total picture of Wiesel, which um, nobody else has done anything as complete as you. I consider you to be the expert on Ellie Wiesel, and you you pronounce his name right too, and I'm trying to get it right. I don't like to emphasize that last syllable, like it's a kind of a French name or something. The the proper way, as far as I understand, is Wiesel. Wiesel. I mean, Wiesel, yeah, okay. Wiesel. Um, well, you usually say it that way, but I, you even like so many others, and like me, it comes out different at different times. It's hard to keep that name right. Well, um, uh, Wiesel sounds, sounds a lot better than Wiesel, definitely. Wiesel well, I wanted better. to sound like Wiesel, Wiesel because it actually, his name actually means a weasel in German. That's, that's the uh-huh. meaning of the yeah. name of the word. Yeah. But I've had to change it. I have, I've had to change my pronunciation too. I try to emphasize the first syllable, Wiesel, Wiesel. Can you talk any about those years in the, between 1945 and 1955, uh, in the orphanage and so on? That's the real mysterious part. I was hoping you would get some information about him at the orphanages, uh, more than what we've already had. I, I looked for everything I could find. I don't think we're ever going to know. And uh, here's another question that people ask, Warren, whether um, when when you say, well, he wasn't in these camps. This is a good thing to follow up with that. They say, well, where was he? If he wasn't in Auschwitz and he wasn't in Buchenwald, where was he? You can't prove a negative. You can't say he wasn't there without well, no, saying no, where he was. 
I'm glad you asked that question. I like I would respond to that in this way. Uh, he he was somebody, uh, and I I wouldn't be surprised. I'm going to say something radical. Mm-hmm. Good. But, uh, this is just pure speculation. We don't know what role his father actually played during the during the war years. His father might actually have been a German collaborator. He might have been one of the people who was policing the ghetto someplace. He might have somebody been somebody who was an employee of the Germans uh, during the war and managed to make it uh, make it back to uh, the West uh, afterwards. We really don't know. But one place we could find the answer to that would be in the records held by the International Tracing Service which were held at Bad Arlson. These are documents that were controlled by the a committee of eight or ten allied nations. And uh, over the years, someone could go to the the record uh, the records at Bad Arlson and with proper documentation check on a father or grandfather, grandmother. Well, 60 years after the war, approximately in 2005, they passed a law, they all voted that these records are just sitting here gathering dust and we should open them up to researchers now. So they were digitized and sent out to uh, various countries that were on the committee controlling access to the documents. Those records should have, in this country should have been sent to the National Archives where you and I could go and consult them. But instead, they were sent to the Holocaust Museum where they have complete control over this documentation. I don't know how many millions of people are concerned. Maybe 18 or 20 million, maybe 25 million people who had records of some kind, who were displaced persons, or people who were caught up in all the horrors going on everywhere across Europe for five years. Three quarters of those records concern people who are not Jewish. And But yet, the Holocaust Museum has a monopoly on all these records. This gives you an idea as to why People like Wiesel and the rest of them, his fellow Holocaustian extremist Jewish uh, 1% millionaire types, why they wanted to create a museum in the first place. Not as a place to shit, well, as brainwashing uh, center, of course, but also as a place to get documentation after the war to keep the real historians from ever being able to get access to what really happened. So, uh, right now, we have no way of finding out what happened to him. There's a good chance, it's probably likely, and maybe even probable, that there's information about those his whole family in the files of the International Tracing Service. But uh, they've got those files. And, uh, well, but Matt, Matt Arlson still has them, doesn't it? Aren't they still, even though they gave them to the the U.S. Holocaust Museum, they still have them at Matt Arlson, don't they? Oh, as far as I know, nobody has access to the to the files of the International Tracing Service and the Holocaust Museum isn't letting anybody see anything. Well, when Bad Arrowson first opened, they said, now here, this is for, you know, scholars to come and learn about. Everything is going to be open for everyone. Well, well, Had they okay. changed that? Well, well, okay, well, if someone, if some Jewish person uh, who was a certified Jewish survivor, quote-unquote, and wants to find out about an uncle or grandfather, I think in that case, yes, it can be done. But you can't go fishing. Mm. You and I, for instance, we can't mm-hmm. go fishing. And we can't just say we want to, people who are known revisionists 
They just can't go in there and go fishing and look through these files, searching for things. Well, see, that's, that's, uh, that's what yeah. I mean. That takes it out of the realm of history and into some kind of, this is all personal stuff about these people. And you don't have any right to know it. Well, let me give you another example of how the Holocaust Museum uh, stifles uh, freedom of research. About four or five years ago, uh, Dr. Mengele's diary came up for sale. Somebody who had owned it for a long time sold it. It was sold quietly and secretly in an auction someplace around Connecticut. And the uh, identity of the person who purchased it was not revealed. I'm just going to speculate now that the entity that bought that diary was the Holocaust Museum or some wealthy person who then gave it to a place like the Holocaust Museum specifically to make it impossible for anyone to ever do justice to Dr. Mangley, who is probably the most maligned person, uh, uh, maybe even more, more maligned than than Hitler or some mm-hmm. of the top Nazis scarring people like that. He was the totally innocent man. He was at the doctor going about doing the best he could to help people in his dispensary in Auschwitz. And he was turned into some kind of a freak, a monster that never existed. It was all made up by, by these uh, self-styled um, eyewitnesses. His diary would have told us so much, but it's gone now. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's there in that museum. If it is, no one will ever see it. Right. Some Jewish person bought it, didn't they? Why was it for sale? I I, I don't know. All, all, I, all I read on the web was that it was bought and that the identity of the uh, purchaser was not released. But maybe it was released and I just... No, I think that's off. right. I've kind of forgotten uh, what all happened there. Uh, well, if, the, if it wasn't, if it was a different kind of a thing, there would be an uproar. People would say, hey, we need to know these things and so on. But because... It's this. No, they feel justified in keeping everything private. Yeah, that museum, well, we'll have to do another show, maybe a number of shows I would like, and for you to talk about everything you know about the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Because that museum in itself is about as bad as the whole Holocaust. I mean, it's just a, just a representation of the same thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's a, dis- it's a disinformation entity. Right. Well, okay. um, I, I think it's been a great discussion. I've really enjoyed it.
welcome back to the program. You just listened to Julius Patzak, Austrian tenor, singing a serenade by Richard Strauss, recorded in 1941. It starts out, open up, open up, but softly, my child. So you get the idea that it's about a young girl, a young child, it turns out to be a little girl, waking up in the morning. Very, very sweet song, and of course, beautifully sung by Patzak. And, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Carolyn Yeager, and with me again for part two of this show is Warren Routledge, author of the new blockbuster book titled Holocaust High Priest, Ellie Wiesel, Night, The Memory Cult, and The Rise of Revisionism. The book is now available at Kodo Bookstore, The Barnes Review, and Amazon, of course. So, Warren, we took a little break, and we're going to finish our conversation now. Do you have any thoughts that you want to start off with, first thing? Well, um, I wouldn't mind uh, continuing where we uh, where we left off the other day. Perhaps we could talk about uh, Elie Wiesel's uh, experiences in the camp. There is quite a bit of information in my Chapter 5 that I devote to his, uh, to various uh, anomalies in his description of his experience at uh, Auschwitz. We could speak about that. Another thing I'd like to get into, if possible, is to talk about uh, the truly autobiographical part of my book, where I talk about the beginning of his career in the 60s and how he uh, encountered a great deal of skepticism from other Jews when he began his career. Okay, I agree with that. But first, Warren, uh, I'd like to say something that came to me as I was editing our first half. And that was that I think Weasel's autobiography, All Rivers Run to the Sea, is more truthful about his life than Knight, even though it's not accurate either. But I think now we have to think of Knight purely as a novel, as you called it, and turn to his autobiography as his account of his life. So not that the autobiography does a very good job, but at least it's, an, it's known to be an autobiography. Well, I also had this thought that when he says that everything in night is true. He's comfortable saying that because to him it means that night expresses the truth of the Jewish experience even if what he wrote didn't actually happen. I think that's that's really the way he thinks about it, why he can even perjure himself and say every word is true because he can say, yes, this is the way it was and that means it's true. You know how he's twisted that around. Um, that even if things didn't happen, they're true, and things that do happen might not be true. You're exactly right. You're absolutely correct. Uh, it's the way he remembers it, quote-unquote. And so he's telling the story, the Jewish Holocaust story is an allegory. It talks about, uh, it, it talks in and talks in concrete terms, in terms of events uh, that are described as having taken place. But the people, the Jewish people who listen to that know that that's just a way of saying, in describing these events, it's a way of saying that they underwent a very difficult time when they were in the camps and that the individual thing that an indiv that a particular survivor says happened isn't necessarily literally true, but figuratively true. The only problem is when the uh, media, when the controlled media gets a hold of the story, they never tell us that. They tell us that everything is literally true. And so the goyim who listen to these stories are turned off 
and reject them because they're obviously falsified. Well, and, and Ellie Wiesel knows that he's, he, he knows that it's taken as true. He, you know, for him to say it's true if it's true in some way because it ha a lot of things happen to a lot of people, so that makes it true. But the, the rest of the world takes it as if something is true, it's, it's historically and liter literally true. So he's, he's conspiring, not cons I shouldn't say conspiring, but he's working with that. He's, he's letting that go by, knowing that it's, uh, it's full of confusion, but he wants it to be. So he, but I think that in his own mind, that's his defense. His defense is that, yes, what I'm saying is true, period, you know. So this, I think this needs to be, uh, exposed quite a bit. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on that. And a couple of other things that, that I wanted to bring up, because we were speaking a little, we brought up, uh, Moish the Beetle, and, yes. uh, and I, I was looking back into what he said about that, because I remembered that his father disapproved of his friendship with this, with this Moish. Now, see, since I think, but the father in night was a more practical man, and he's always described his father as being a more practical. His father told him, according to the story, you are too young for that, meaning the study of the Kabbalah. And he was only 13 years old at the time. And his father said, one must be 30 before venturing into mysticism. First, you must study basic subjects. And that's exactly what Weasel didn't want to do. He didn't want to study anything else. Now, he didn't want to study real subjects, school subjects. He wanted to, to only study the Talmud, as you were talking about already. And Weasel says in the book, I succeeded in finding a master for myself in the person of Moish the Beetle. He spoke to me for hours on end about the Kabbalah's revelations and its mysteries. Thus began my initiation. So he was going against his father all the time. His father wasn't happy with the way he was developing and that his that he wasn't getting a good education. He managed to get his way, though. He was very willful, this young Ellie. And he also said that his sisters helped in the store, but as for me, my place was in the house of study, or so they said. So he, and he's talked about this, too, in his autobiography, that he was supposed to, he didn't have to work around the house. He didn't work in the store. He didn't do anything. He he was just supposed to be studying, which is what Hasid, Hasidic men do, and the women actually do all the work. A lot of women support the whole family because uh, in Hasid uh, families, societies, because the men are good for nothing except sitting in their pile of books all day long, and th this is though supposed to be something to praise them for. Yes, that's right. Now, I, then I just wanted to say that um, you said you wanted to talk more about the camps and his experience in the camps. Um, I just want to say that, uh, as as we already brought out, I think the most important thing for me in your book coming out, which has meant a lot to me, your 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 great book and having that full and complete essay by Carlo Matonio in the appendix at the end, has been very liberating for me because I am now going to spend my time in, uh, among other things, in, in pointing out as, as much as I can that Wiesel was not in those camps. And if he was not in those camps, I mean, he is, as we mentioned uh, in a private 
correspondence before, he is a complete fraud, not just a partial fraud. And, you know, see, I think this is important because, and I don't know why more, why so many revisionists want to, don't want to go there, you know, want to hold back on that. Because my experience is that no matter how many lies he tells and so on and how ridiculous he is, as long as the people who believe in him, which is most people, as long as he was in those camps and he lost his mother, father, and sister, nothing else, none of this other stuff matters to them. He suffered so much. He was young, and this happened to him. And if he tells a bunch of lies, so what? But if he wasn't there, if it can be shown or if you can convince enough people that he actually wasn't there and they can't come up with the evidence that he was there, then it's all it's all up for Elie Wiesel. You're exactly right. So I think that's important. I agree completely. And I'm so happy that you agree. <laughs> See, that makes me so happy. Well, uh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm in the section where uh, Wiesel, Wiesel comes into the camp and he's about to encounter uh, Dr. Mengele. And he presents Dr. Mengele in a way uh, that is totally different from the way the man actually looked in real life. He presents him the same way that Eric von Stroheim looked physically in the uh, movie by Jean Renoir, La Grande Illusion, or The Grand Illusion, the bald head, German uniform, at a, uh, a riding crop uh, under his arm. Whereas in, in reality, uh, Dr. Mengele didn't look like that at all. Uh, he didn't stand around with a director's baton, as Wiesel calls it, telling people to go to the left or the right. So I think that sign is absolutely staggering and that this is supposed to be a key experience of his uh, that he that he met uh, uh, Dr. Mengele there. Another real problem occurs in Marion uh, Wiesel's uh, translation of 2007. She adds some words to her English translation that are not found in the French original. Uh, Ellie walks up to Dr. Mengele and uh, starts to describe him. And then they have the little conversation about how old he is and so forth. And uh, then Marion Weasel introduces the words, we only found out later that it was Dr. Mengele. Yeah, she's... She's trying to remedy a problem that how would how would Vezel uh, have known who this person was when he first encountered him? But by the time he wrote the book in 1958, he could have known through his own research or contacts with these other people in the camp. He's always fond of saying, "I checked with the other survivors. I checked with the other survivors." So when he wrote the book in 1958. If he had checked with the other survivors, he would have known, oh, yes, that was Mengele. But for her to stick in this sentence, we only found out later that it was Mengele, is to me, it's another admission of guilt on the part of this husband and wife tag team, Marion and Ellie, that the whole study, the whole scene is completely made up. And here's this boy walking in. Walking in with long sideburns, the, those the sideburns are over his ears and all decked out like a Hasid. And um, uh, he, they want us to believe, or the narrator wants us to believe that 
Mengele was so stupid he thought the boy was a farmer. He was a farmhand. Oh, Jews to begin with were not farmers. They were city dwellers. So it's, it's so, it's so, so incredibly insulting to the reader. I spent a little bit of time on that. And then as you know, I developed just a little bit the image of Mengele as he is presented in the New York Times over the years. And there are so many in my files. I have so many uh, articles from obituaries that I've cut out of the New York Times where various so-called survivors describe their experience of working for Mengele. And one description is more disgusting than the other. And in my book, I have a description of Jesus Le Pearl, which just goes beyond all the others. Even worse, it was published in the New York Times, and it's something that's so low down and despicable that even the uh, lowest uh, tabloid, like the Daily Mail, probably wouldn't even um, wouldn't even uh, print this. But Jesus Le Pearl, uh, she says of herself, she describes what it was uh, like. Or she told the reporter in the New York Times, she said, but all of medicine was her province and the camp. As one of five doctors and four nurses chosen by Dr. Mangley to operate a hospital ward that had no beds, no bandages, no drugs, and no instruments, she tended every disease wrought by torture, starvation, filth, lice, and rats to every broken bone or head cracked open by beating. She performed surgery without anesthesia on women whose breasts had been lacerated by whips and become infected. Now, this shows you a very, very sick person, a very sick mind. And the New York Times printed this in her obituary. Did people expect people like dumb Gentiles to believe this? But this could be, of course, among Jews, they know that this isn't true. They know it's not true. It's just a hyperbolic way of saying she had a tough time while she was in the camp. They know it's not literal. But it's the CIA, the people who control the media, uh, who put this forth as having been literally true. I don't know uh, why they do that. I can't understand part of it is, to part what of the it, survivors it's say. In, it's an in-joke among them that they're able to get the goyim who are so stupid that they that they believe all this. And so uh, it's like a game. They want to say things that are more and more outrageous and in violation of the laws of nature and then see it in print and they have a chuckle among themselves. But boy, this is printed in the paper and the dumb goy are going to be walking around feeling guilty about this. Some people think that it has pornographic that there's a pornographic strain in Jews who like to talk like this and like to think about things like this. And if they had their opportunity, I guess they would treat people like this if they thought they were their enemies. And they, they, uh, that's why they come up with these out, outrageous kind of yeah, it's just uh, a, tortures. It's just ridiculous. So I was going to ask you, Warren, uh, when you mentioned Weasel coming to Auschwitz in in the book night. He would have had uh, those uh, those ringlets, whatever. He the, would have had the sideburns. Uh, he would have Christian, been dressed. Orthodox Jew. Uh, but, you know, there's that picture of him with that suit on, with just his button shirt, no tie, where he's supposed to be 15 years old. And, it was, and it's always said that this was taken before they were deported to Auschwitz. And that's uh, always taken that way, that this was this was him in his home town, you know, living the good life. 
but he doesn't he's got very close cropped hair dark hair he doesn't have any any of those any of that Hasidic look so what do you say about that well I'm not sure what you're you know that picture you you have uh, compared it to the picture of him uh, the person in the Buchenwald camp that's supposed to be Wiesel in that famous photograph of the liberation of Buchenwald you've compared those two pictures and you also compared that picture to him in, in a younger picture that was only a couple years earlier than that, where he looks very young. But in neither of these pictures does he have these these. Yeah, that's that, that's true. Uh, that's a very interesting point. Uh, he doesn't have them in either picture. Uh, that, that's a really troubling question. That And also, not only the two pictures in my book, but some of the pictures that appear on your website, uh, some of the pictures that were taken at the refugee center outside Paris. He doesn't seem to have any of those curls over his ears in those pictures either. So he considered himself orthodox, but he didn't seem to consider himself ultra-orthodox, ultra-orthodox enough to have that kind of a haircut. Well, now, this really does open up something new, more than I had even been thinking about. Uh, Another area to consider, you know, according to the pictures of him, how orthodox were they in that family? And yet uh, he spent all his time at the synagogue, as you say, you know, praying and, and meeting with people that he could study mysticism with. Well, that brings up a very interesting question because we were discussing in the first part of this show uh, my reference to the description of the young orthodox boys uh, engaging in erotic behavior, boys and possibly girls, engaging in erotic behavior. And I said in in the cattle car, while all the other people looked aside, and I said to you, that reads to me like something that would be written by a Jewish guy who's not Orthodox. He's he's a cultural Jew who doesn't terribly like Orthodox Jews, and that's the case of many, many, if not most, non-religious Jews. And maybe, in fact, Wiesel actually wrote this passage. Uh, Who knows? But... This is another contradictory aspect to it, that maybe, in fact, he didn't grow up. He didn't grow up in a, a tightly orthodox setting, and which would only prove that the so-called autobiography is really, in fact, a novel, which I've said it is all along, in which he made up a character who is an orthodox Jewish boy who is totally different from himself. Yeah. Right. And that goes back to his past. What was he really doing? If they, if he wasn't in those camps, there has to be some kind of uh, search for where he would have been. Now, you, you mentioned that maybe his father, just speculating, you know, that maybe his father worked was a collaborator with the Germans. Uh, my thought goes in the other direction, that he was possibly a resistance fighter amongst the Jews, in fact, there is there's a relative, and there's two of uh, those uh, forms that people fill out for Yad Vashem that say that his father died, and, and his uncle too, his father and his father's brother, both died in 1943. And if something like that were to be turn out to be the case, you can't really trust those forms, but then uh, maybe the family somehow mani- managed to leave the area or go... West and they had relatives in uh, the Netherlands that come up at a later time and I went into that some, 
But as you say, you know, there, it's there's no we don't know where to go to find out any real information. But that leads to possibilities that he was near near France and ended up there uh, at that orphanage without having come from Buchenwald. And I I had the idea that he was at that with that OSE that French uh, Jewish orphanage group that looked after these kids and other kids too, not just kids from Buchenwald. And he was he was kind of a uh, he wasn't actually one of the wards at that time. He was kind of a teacher or he, um, maybe a group leader, you know, one of the staff who was there helping out the kids because he looks a little older than, than the others. Well, there's a lot of possibilities, but no proof, <laughs> unfortunately, so far. Well, well when he, uh, one thing we know is that uh, if, if he wound up in that group home, the Orthodox group home for teenage boys who were displaced persons, they're there must have been, uh, at least on the ground by the people who put him on that train, there must have been evidence that if his parents weren't deceased, at least he was separated from his parents. Uh, he could have been separated from his parents, but didn't know, uh, uh, but they were still alive. We, we don't know. But when he got there, it wasn't too long after he got there uh, that... Um, he was able to reconnect with his sister. I don't go into this in the book, uh, but he claims that his picture appeared in the paper one day in Paris or some kind of a little newspaper that was published among all the Jewish refugees. And uh, his sister saw his picture in the paper. She had also miraculously wound up in the Paris area, and she found out. So uh, I think I think there might have been, I, I think, there might the father might have worked for the Germans, and we we can't rule out anything here. We can't no, rule no. Out anything. No, you can't rule out. I'm just saying, but there's other possibilities. Now, the thing with that picture in the paper, I finally got hold of that picture, and I was so thrilled about that. And I've got it on uh, the site Eloise Cons the World, and it's a picture of a boy playing chess, and his his sister when she gave that interview to the Shoah Foundation. She revealed a lot of things that are very interesting, and I've written all about that, uh, whatever was you know, useful in it. But she says, I, I think that she's going along with his story, but this photograph that was in the newspaper is not Ellie Wiesel. It's not him as a young boy that, that age. It's somebody else. doesn't look anything like him. Even the body shape and everything is different. And you can look on my site. I'll, point, I'll make a note to give you the link to it and look at it yourself. So this is um, this is another fake story. Now this brings up, and this is the last thing I wanted to say before you start in on some of the things you want to talk about, and that is that another clue that I was just noticed yesterday, I was going back over some articles, and in uh, what I wrote on January 2nd, 2011, in the uh, first article of Elie Wiesel and the Mossad, which was a four-part series, but in the first one, uh, he writes that, uh, in, he wrote in his autobiography, All Rivers, his memoir, that he and his young fellow survivors wanted to go to Palestine right from Buchenwald, but naturally their American liberators wouldn't allow them to do that. They settled for free transportation and lodgings in France, sponsored by the Jewish Welfare Agency, the 
no, a Jewish welfare agency, and also the OSE, and also the government of Charles de Gaulle. And I said, if it turns out to be true that Wiesel was not at Buchenwald, as I believe, now I wrote, say, I want people to know I said that in 2000, January 2011, then he was not on that particular passenger trip to France either that he describes on page 109 of his memoir. There he gives a strange explanation for why he never received French nationality. And you know how he went on and on about being a stateless person. Well, he wrote this. But he, was, he said the train stopped at the border, they got off, uh, and a police official made a speech. Now, it must have been the French border. And the speech was in French, but he didn't understand anything about it. And he saw people raising their hands, and he assumed they were volunteering for some task. But he later found out that the policeman had asked for a show of hands of all those who wished to become French citizens. Since I did not respond, he said, they probably wrote in my file, refused French nationality. Probably, probably, he says. The consequence of my blunder was endless harassment and administrative hassles. Now, this is uh, questionable, I say, but it's really stupid, stupid, stupid explanation for why he we remained stateless for so long. But now, why would the boys be expected to know French? Of course, they wouldn't. So they wouldn't have a man speaking to them in French and not uh, interpreted for them uh, on such an important issue as this is when they were going to say whether they wanted to become French nationals. And how would they know before they ever got there anyway whether they wanted to do that? So secondly, there were two Jewish-American army chaplains accompanying them on this trip to help them out and assist them, you know, American Jews, army chaplains, who were, they were looking out for their welfare, but they obviously weren't looking out for Weasel there if he you know, was were not allowed to make a choice on that because he didn't understand it. And third, Weasel says, they probably wrote in my file, well, he did, didn't he ask about it? He's, he's saying later, they probably did this. He never showed any interest to find out. And yet he's saying he suffered so much from being a stateless person. And, of course, that would have all been straightened out if he had just spoken up and said, oh, what this happened, you know, and I came from Buchenwald. And, and, of course, they'd be happy to make him a French national if he was one of the boys from Buchenwald, which says to me this simple little part in, in his autobiography that he made up this story to cover why he remained stateless when maybe others did not and were, became French nationals at that time. So he, he's again making a silly story up, which doesn't fit the world as we know it, and yet nobody questions him about it. There's more evidence that uh, that he didn't come from Buchenwald. Well, I, I, that could very well be. I, it's something, uh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not aware of all these new pieces of information, and they, they're entirely plausible, and that that could very well be. He could have come on a train of refugees, but from a different place. Sure. Sure, a lot of things could have happened. And I think I think it was different than than what he says. I was going to ask you, actually, but I, I might put you on the spot. What I think it's kind of clear why, but uh, maybe people don't understand it. Uh, why Why is it that so many revisionists don't want to refused to think that Elie Wiesel was not, was not the same guys as Lazar Wiesel and 
the other Lazar, Wiesel, and so on that are on all these documents, and that his father wasn't, uh, really was, uh, his name was changed to Abram for some reason, and that really meant him. Why, why do so many revisionists not want to take the position that you and Carlo Matonio and I have taken? Well, maybe it's because they're afraid that Wiesel uh, uh, might uh, produce a picture at some point through some means uh, claiming that this is a picture of his arm with his tattoo on it. And, of course, nobody will be able to re- to refute that if, if because so, so Wiesel has an opportunity at some point through subterfuge to claim that he that he has a tattoo. They might be afraid of that. I don't know. But uh, I, I agree with you and Matanyo that, uh, uh, to me, uh, he definitely was not. Uh, he was not at uh, Buchenwald, definitely. Well, and you know why? Uh, how how could he produce a tattoo now after all this time? We see he have pictures of his arm without it. There's no way. I mean, I know that this is what a lot of people say. That's an excess of caution to my mind, you know. And I've, I've they made that argument to me over the website, which is which is you know about where's the tattoo? You know, oh, you you got to be careful with this. No. Um, it's, it's ridiculous. He, why hasn't he done it? He would have done it by now. He's going to be dead pretty soon. Yeah, and and yeah, uh, so exactly. Yeah. This is this is ridiculous. I I think they might think that there's an outside possibility that he he was there and the records are messed up. But again, I think that's an excess of caution because he hasn't. They haven't come up with anything. And you and you know how Ken Waltzer tried to make out a case for that with proof and so on, and he failed miserably. Yeah, it's yeah. true. It's true. So I, I think I think that there are some revisionists, Warren, who like the idea of talking about Elie Wiesel at, at Auschwitz and all the tall tales that he told and all the ridiculous stories and how wrong he was and make him out to be a liar. And they're so happy with that that they don't want to go beyond that. And if he wasn't there, then his stories are not real. For example... The favorite story is the one about the, the operation on his foot in night, and he could have stayed behind, but he decided to go with the Germans and how that proves this, that, and the other thing. Uh, they like that story so much, and if we have to look at, at it that he wasn't there, then all these stories, he, none of these things happened. <laughs> you know, none of this stuff happened. And so it changes the whole picture, and I don't think they're prepared to do that. These are people who are good revisionists in a lot of areas, but they have not studied Ellie Wiesel the way you have, for sure, and not the way I have. And even Carlo Antonio took the trouble to go and look into all of this deeply. And these other people haven't done that. Well, people have different opinions about that. I think think that um, just because a weasel, for instance, claims that he had an operation in January over at the Monowitz SS camp doesn't mean that that uh, that that actually happened. I mean, it's so far fetched, and uh, it doesn't prove that he was that he was there. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure, but I think uh, Levy, the Italian uh, novelist uh, who wrote This Is a Man, I think he might have had an operation as well. Uh, when he was in the same hospital, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I one time, one time I, I wondered if he might, if Weasel might have plagiarized that book, which was published, uh, which was published uh, in time early enough for him to have read it and to have taken some ideas from it. But I'm not sure. I've never, I've never expressed an opinion one way or another. 
but the, the, the whole notion that he has this operation, a very serious operation, and he requires two weeks of bed rest, and then three days later, he takes this long 60-kilometer walk. It's just so far-fetched, I can't believe it. I really do not believe that he was actually there. It's my personal opinion. Yeah, and, and here's another thing um, that was brought to my mind yesterday, that he, you know, in nine, he wrote that he became, he started writing for the newspaper Zion in Kampf, which is an Irgun newspaper, Irgun, the uh, terrorist group, in November 1947. So just think that oh, just two years, about two years after he is uh, coming, gets out of that Buchenwald camp and he's in, he's in Paris, that he goes from being a 17-year-old lost soul, you know, just out of this slave camp and all the trauma he's been through and so on, and two years later, he's a, he's a journalist for this resistance newspaper and knows all these people in the resistance movement. Does that make, that doesn't make much sense, does it? Yeah, that's uh, it's a, it's a very interesting point, very point well taken, yeah. Yeah. So I think we could probably, knowing that this is an important issue, it's important for me, that I could probably come up with more things to to point out about it. And you've certainly covered lots and lots of things in your book as to that show that uh, his his being in the camps doesn't make any sense. I hope that you will come back, Warren, and talk with me again soon. Would you do that? Well, I don't think it will happen soon. I think uh, um, I still have a couple other people I have to have interviews with. And uh, I, I don't want to go back and have a second interview with one person while I'm still waiting to have my first interview with somebody else. So sure. it'll happen. Sure. Well, but no, I wasn't talking about like next week or anything that soon. But uh, I would like to hear the whole story from you about Weasel and the Catholic Church because that plays a very large part in your book and you touched on it but there's so much more to say it's very interesting how he became a kind of a spearhead for the Jewish influence over the Catholic Church well that's a good idea that's a good idea but it it won't be for a while it's it's summertime there's a lot going on in my life and uh, it'll happen but it's not it's not it depends upon what your definition of soon is it's not going to happen in the next week or two. Oh no 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 we'll no just be in touch but I appreciate you inviting me on the show very much <clears throat> and also look forward to cooperating with you and working together with you and I appreciate all the work you do on your website it's phenomenal all the things you've discovered well thanks I'll look forward to talking to you again about this and thanks for being on the program, Warren. Thank you. I, I, I look forward to coming back and talking about Pope Pius XII and Elie Wiesel. That'll be interesting. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Heretics Hour with Carolyn Yeager on May 11, 2015. My guest has been Warren B. Routledge, author of Holocaust High Priest, Elie Wiesel, Night, The Memory Cult, and The Rise of Revisionism. Hope to see you again next week. Good night.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.